I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. There are two reasons why during Advent it is very, very important to help each other feel our need for a Savior or to help each other see the need for a Savior. The first reason is a psychological law that I think you'll just agree with as soon as you hear it from your own experience. If an inner tube hits you in the head when you're drowning, you don't swear. And if it hits you in the head when you're playing, you might swear. You don't kiss the feet of a Savior unless you feel you need to be saved. If you're going down and he pulls you up, you'll hug him. If he bumps into you along the street, you won't hug him. We need to feel that we were lost. Otherwise, we'll look at Jesus and say, Jesus, How else are you going to come to love Jesus unless you know you were desperate without Him? That's reason number one. And I think the most loving thing I can do during Advent is to help you see your need for a Savior so that you love Jesus. Second reason is in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Namely, we ought to remember our need for a Savior because the Bible commands us to remember it. Verse 11 begins, Remember. And you say, well, remember what? Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, so he's talking to believers who once were not believers, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But the key word now, the key practical word in that verse is remember. After you've been saved for 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, remember what you were or would have been without the Savior. Part of your regular devotional life should be remember, remember what you would have been. So my second reason for trying to help you see your need for a Savior is so that you will obey verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. Not to remember is to disobey the Bible. Remember from what you've been saved. And so that's my aim. My plan had been last Sunday to preach on verse 1 of Ephesians 2, dead in sin. To preach today on verse 2, captive to an alien power. And to preach next Sunday on verse 3, by nature, children of wrath. And then on the Sunday before Christmas to take those two words at the beginning of verse 4, and unpack them for all they're worth. But God. I love those words. Three verses of destitution. 
And then the grand but God. So, we lost last Sunday. So, next Sunday we'll put two sermons together. And uh, verses 2 and 3 will become one message. So today I direct your attention to verse 1. Literally, you being dead in your trespasses and sins. And then you can drop your eyes down to verse 5 and see it one other time. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. So the first reason for you to feel a need for a Savior is to remember that you were dead. You ask most Christians, why do you need a Savior? They would answer, I think, because I have sinned. I have thus in sinning incurred the judgment of God. And therefore I need someone who can die in my place and remove the condemnation of God and open eternal life. And that's true. And that's wonderful. But that's not what this text says. We need a Savior to do more than that. Because we were dead. We weren't just in the doghouse with God. We were in the morgue, ice cold on a marble slab in the dark. In the doghouse, you might whimper to get his attention. You might say you're sorry. You might form some good resolves. You might cast yourself on the mercy of God. But what do you do if you're in the morgue? If this means what it looks like it means, we needed some kind of Savior. Didn't we? Some Savior. Who will suffice to walk through the morgues and build a people for Himself? Well, I don't want to pour my meaning into this word. We best look around in the context to get Paul's Intention in this word dead. There are a lot of people who read the word dead and see something totally different than what I see. So let's look at the context and see what clues Paul gives us for the meaning of dead. Let's go to verse 3. At the end of verse 3, you see this awful sentence. The end. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's everybody. Jews and Gentiles. In other words, everything you did to incur the wrath of God before you were saved, you did by nature. It was your nature so to do. It was my nature so to do. We are by nature sinners. Or look at verse 2. See that phrase, sons of disobedience? What does that mean? Sons of disobedience. I think it means disobedience is in our spiritual genes. Rebellion runs in the human family. 
By nature, we are rebels against God. You don't learn it. You are it. So we need a Savior, not just because we've sinned, but because we sin by nature. That's me. Sinner. By nature, rebel against heaven. Now that doesn't sound like death. But it is. Dead to obedience. Alive to disobedience. Dead to submission. Alive to rebellion. Dead to faith. Alive to unbelief. Sure, we act. There's a lot of life going on in one sense, isn't there? A lot of rebellion life, but we're dead in a doornail when it comes to the Spirit, to belief and submission and obedience. So, what we need in the morgue is a miracle of life, a twitch, a quiver of inclination toward God spiritually. One other clue for the meaning of dead. Look at verse 10. The first clue was, by nature, children of wrath. The second clue was, sons of disobedience. And the third clue now is, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See that word created? What does that mean? That's a radical statement. I mean, it's one thing to say we had to be raised from the dead. It's another thing to say we had to be created. That's more radical, isn't it? Creating, that's God's work. To create, only God creates. Let there be light. I mean, Elijah raised a man from the dead. Only God creates. So here we have two images, two metaphors, a resurrection and creation. So you ask, what does it mean to get converted? What does it mean to pass from death to life? It means something like a resurrection and something like a creation. And so dead means you're a candidate for that. A spiritual candidate for resurrection and creation. So we're not just in the doghouse with God, we're in the morgue. Now here's what that means. It's very practically. Don't, don't let this linger out there in some kind of theological space land. Before we were raised from the dead by the word of Christ, everything we said, everything we did, everything we thought, everything we felt came from what we were by nature, children of wrath, and was therefore unspiritual and therefore Sin. All we ever did before Christ quickened us and brought us to Himself was sin. You believe that? I'm sure some of you don't because you've never been taught it. But I'm going to try to persuade you that that's true. If we are by nature children of wrath, we don't have the Holy Spirit. We are what Paul calls natural people, devoid of the Spirit. We have nature, and by nature, rebels. And out of this comes action. You might build a hospital, you might feed the hungry, 
you might educate the ignorant, and it's all sin if it isn't done for the glory of God, in reliance upon the enablement of God, pointing people to the salvation of God. Because what is sin but falling short of the glory of God? Did you do anything for the glory of God before you got saved? No, it was all sin. We live in a society who doesn't understand sin at all. Sin, somebody will say, no doubt, oh wait a minute, I know lots of unbelievers who are good people. They don't sin all the time. They do good things. In fact, I know some unbelievers who are better than some believers. When you talk like that, you simply are an atheist. You leave God out of account. God made these people for Himself. To love Him, worship Him, trust Him, obey Him, honor Him. And you're going to call all their deeds done in reliance upon themselves without any regard for the glory of God, anything but sin. It's really quite irrelevant whether people on their way to hell might be made a little more comfortable by these actions. Look, sin has to do with God. Don't let the, the media define sin for you as though it means hurting another person merely with no reference to God. What is sin? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what you don't do for the glory of God is sin. Whatsoever is not from faith is sin. Hebrews or Romans 14.23 So if you don't act in faith, you sin. You only sin. You get up in the morning and brush your teeth. It is sin. You do your job all day long and don't make one mistake and it's all sin. Now, do you begin to see how horrible is the condition of a person before he has a Savior? All we do is sin without a Savior because we don't do anything for His glory. We don't do anything in reliance on His power. He gets no honor from us at all. Oh, I hope you see that. Because you'll love Jesus the more if you see it and if you see it outside Christ right now. It means He's opening your eyes to bring you in. Let's turn to Romans 8, verses 6 and 9. I want to let another text inform the meaning now of what it means to be dead in sin. Romans 8, verses 6 to 9. As you read this, be asking yourself the question, what is Paul's understanding of being dead? Before we had the Holy Spirit, before we were saved, before we were converted and quickened and brought to life by Jesus. Verse 6. Literally, the mind of the flesh is death. There it is. The mind of the flesh is death. And the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. For it does not submit to God's law, for it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, let's, let's interpret those verses together. Let's look at them carefully. Going backwards. Before we have the Spirit of God, what are we? Flesh. In the flesh. And what, according to verse 7, is the mind of the flesh? Rebellion. Enmity. Against God. And what happens to a person who is gripped by the mind of the flesh? That person, according to verse 7, cannot submit to God's law. And according to verse 8, cannot please God. And therefore, verse 6 says, the mind of the flesh is death. So here's my interpretation of what death means. It means to be so gripped by what you are by nature that you can't submit to God or please God. Or to put it another way, until the Holy Spirit comes and frees you from the mind of the flesh and gives you the mind of the Spirit and dwells in you and quickens you, everything you do is insubordination and displeasing to God. Now, doesn't that follow from that text? Am I just making that up? I want you to affirm these things doctrinally because the Holy Spirit will then take the truth in your head and if not in this service, perhaps tonight when you wake up in the middle of the night, grip you with the reality of what you would be or had been without Christ. He'll cause you to love Jesus in this Advent season by showing you how desperate you were in the flesh before the Spirit came, quickening you and bringing you to life. And once you feel that in the middle of the night and shudder in terror before hell, you'll kiss Him. You'll love Him. You'll live for Him. You'll testify to Him at work. You won't be ashamed of Him. You see the positive upshot of preaching about sin? Until we feel it, we'll never love the Savior. Well, I close with one reference to a verse that Jesus said. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 23. Did Jesus teach these things? Did Paul learn these doctrines from the Lord? Matthew 23. You know he said in Luke uh, 8, Let the dead bury their dead. What does that mean? Let the dead bury their dead. That's where Paul got his doctrine. Paul read the traditions of the Lord and thought on them by the power of the Spirit and under the inspiration unpacked the meaning of let the dead bury their dead. He didn't have to make anything up. It's all right there. And in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. There it is. You are tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So there it is, the classic righteous dead man. Squeaky clean on the outside. Dead, full of bones and rottenness on the inside. I close with a warning and a great encouragement and invitation. First, the warning. It's right here. 
The warning is to me, pastor, teacher of the law. You who teach the law, why do you not obey the law? Romans 2. I hear this warning, but it's for all of us here. We are the cream of the crop. We are squeaky clean in this room this morning on the outside. And that, brothers and sisters, means nothing necessarily about whether we are dead and full of rottenness on the inside. So take it as a warning. I do. First of all, the warning is don't think that because you go to church or read your Bible or don't kill and don't commit adultery. Man, the Pharisees outshined us on those things. Pretty good. And they were dead. Whitewashed morgue caskets. Ice cold, white. That's the warning. Examine yourself. The real test is, do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? Now here's the, here's the word of invitation and encouragement to any of you who might be saying to yourself right now, my God, I might be dead. comes from John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, these are the words of Jesus to you this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then listen to this following verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, 1207, 1985, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Did you hear it this morning? Did you hear the voice of the Son of God? If you did, He has been bringing you to life. Don't resist Him. Don't make it a sham. If you have heard the teaching that I have laid before you and have affirmed it from your heart, yes, that's the way I am or was. You have heard the voice of the Son of God and by grace He has opened the ears of your heart. Follow through with Him. Embrace Him. Love Him. He is after you. Give yourself to the Savior. There's no reason anybody should go out of this room dead this morning if you have heard. For those who hear the voice of the Son of God shall live. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, Almighty, this is the truth of candle too. The call of God makes everything new. Make it new for people this morning. New families, maybe. New place at work. A new attitude toward a neighbor. A new beginning in salvation. Trusting Christ. And get glory for yourself, Savior. Great Savior. In Your name we pray. Amen.